You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your esteemed leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and Rick, my loyal subjects. And uh, today we have a, an additional guest. His name is Brandon, the game dev, because I don't remember his last name. He's last name is the game dev. Even I know it's Brandon Rollins. It's on uh, my birth certificate geez. now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't have a copy of your birth certificate on file yet. I totally forgot to ask. And so I'm really excited because on this episode, we get to talk about really project management and all sorts of outsourcing that would be very, very helpful for a board game company or really, I mean, you know, we're not limited to board games. It's just that board games are by far the coolest crowdfunding project, mm -hmm. uh, product to kickstart. So that's why it just comes out so naturally. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So, um, you know, for the edification of our listeners, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. So the super simple intro, um, my name is Brandon Rollins. I am better known as Brandon the Game Dev on the internet. I am a board game developer turned blogger, instructional educational blogger turned marketing consultant and owner of Pangea Marketing. And that's actually what I spend most of my time on these days, running my marketing company, as well as a smaller blog called Weird Marketing Tales, where I just talk about, uh, along with some friends, all kinds of different marketing case studies, which we find interesting. That sounds super fun too, because that's, that's kind of like our mission. We really love to just talk marketing stuff and case studies, firsthand examples. That's what we love. And speaking of weird, I, I heard you had a weird story for us. <gasps> yes. In news, this is our weird news segment. So I was talking about how I had been running a podcast with, um, with a colleague of mine for a while. And we have, we've landed all kinds of unusual guests over the time, over time, just because in Chattanooga, just kind of, it's a town that, that draws a lot of kind of hipster, hipsters and Southerners in the same place. So you get a lot of odd stuff going on there. Skinny jeans and cowboy boots. There is actually a lot of that unironically. I found a guy once wearing something similar to that, playing bagpipes at the end of the pedestrian bridge, um, uh -oh. like on... I, I guess like Frazier Adams, everybody's familiar with that. Gosh, I, I mean, I wish TikTok existed at that time. It was like 16 or 17 and nobody was really using it yet. But the weirdest way we ever landed a guest was we literally landed a guest. And I mean that in the sense that a guy paraglided off of a mountain called um, Signal Mountain, about 10, 12 miles away and sailed right into the park. Uh, within a, like a hundred or 200 yards of my consultant at the time. And he was meditating in the park as one does in Chattanooga. So he's like, okay, okay. He I'm walks up jeans. to this guy wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> he walks up to him and he asks him to be on the show. And he's like, well, it's a business show, but we just kind of have interesting people on. And we ask him about their experiences and we had a lovely hour-long conversation on aviation and setting a good mindset before you go out to, to do something complicated. And we ended up getting shockingly good content out of it. Really, it always stuck with me because you, can, you can't ever make something like that happen. That's awesome. I, Did you I, see that 
you see that video that was going viral of the guy who was like on a paragliding in like the Swiss Alps and he didn't he wasn't strapped in properly. So he spent the whole the entire time just holding onto the bar for his dear life. He fractured his hand. That's honestly what starting a business felt like in your twenty. But yeah, that's terrifying, man. I don't like that. I'll put in the show notes. I'm gonna have to see this. It sounds like I should never go paragliding. That's that's some fun weird news. But let's let's talk about some other weird news. I don't know if I'd call it weird, but and I'm not talking about renting chickens, which is another thing we talked about off the air. That's mm-hmm. evidently a, it, thing you evidently a very popular business, and they're very nice folks <laughs> yeah, to talk and, to. and filthy rich. So, <laughs> yeah. So I was uh, I was reading uh, Kickstarter has the uh, you know th- this at at the time this podcast goes live, it's um, going to be probably two weeks from the time that we're th- that this was introduced, but. Kickstarter now has, in essence, a response to Backerkit and um, to others that have, you know, GameFound and Backerkit that have announced, you know, new features and hmm. all of that. They have, I keep wanting to call it a ministry of truth. It's that's not what it is. John, you want to, you want to, it's the thing I feel like I'm about to screw it up. It's a community, community advisory council. They got people from, I suppose, the Kickstarter community who could submit an application once they agree to, I suppose, like a commission statement or something. And then I must have had some type of interview and they get paid. I think they get paid five, five grand a year to be part of this committee. And their job is, I suppose, basically to submit feedback to Kickstarter on how to improve the platform. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially what it is. Mm-hmm. But we've been given those specifics. It's basically here are the people, this is who they are. And this is what the, the plan is. I think a lot of people are showing skepticism because... It's it seems it'd be a bit too late, but um yeah I'm I'm hoping something positive will come out of this. We'll see some you know some meaningful changes to the platform. But hey, we don't know. I think a lot of people are sort of uh, feeling disgruntled to say the least with Kickstarter at the moment. So I don't know if it's going to be of much avail to their public relations department. Sounds like cheap labor to me. Yeah, we're going to have you guys come up with all the ideas for our company, and we're going to give you five thousand dollars. <laughs> The missing CEO position is why the advisory council probably exists. I, I do think this is a good thing. I, I legitimately see Kickstarter as trying to improve and knowing that they need to improve and coming up with a committee to work to improve. The problem is that it's a committee and not like a single mind that is that has a clear vision. So the I, I fear that it'll be like death by committee um, on this thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, especially with, what was it, 24 members? Am I wrong? Uh, I feel like there were a lot of members, at least 12 members. Um, I went and I reviewed them, but now it's like escaping me. And um, now there are good people on this council that are highly experienced and seasoned. I actually, I'm sure that all of them are creators. In fact, um, I was reached out to, to be, you know, to apply to be a part of the council as well. And I think that they did, they reached, they sent an email out to, many of their creators asking for that. And then, you know, they probably filtered through the applications and said, you know, I, I didn't apply or anything like that, but um, at least they're moving fast on it. My take on the way that it's being received is that people are just mad at Kickstarter. So anything that Kickstarter does, they're just going to get a mad reaction. Another thing is a committee is a way to shift blame, I suppose, because mm-hmm. if, there is something they can say, well, our committee suggested this and, you know, they can sort of use it as a scapegoat. So I don't know if that's going to be 
the case, but it does provide a, an interesting target that they can th throw in front of the crowd and say, yeah, to, to the wolves. <laughs> well, I, I was just saying, I'm, I'm actually going to throw Kickstarter a bone, although I actually think everything that you've just said is, is a very good point about organizational behavior and a lot of the changes that have needed to be made for a while to the editor, to like being able to integrate Facebook pixels, stuff like that. But like the first thing I think is, well, two things I, I'm just going to throw them a bone here is first trying to even making a gesture saying we're going to listen to feedback is something in the positive direction. And the second is each of these folks individually, at least from my skimming of their profiles, look pretty qualified to be able to talk about what kind of changes to the platform would be good. The third thing that comes to mind though, is that 12 people is the exact amount that you have on an American jury when somebody is being tried for a crime. And the reason I point that out is because juries are known for taking a really long time to come to a decision because it's really hard to get 12 people from like different walks of life. Yeah, exactly. It, and that's by design because we don't want them to rush through the decision. Getting 12 adults from different backgrounds to agree unanimously on something is really, really, really hard. And we don't want to send people to jail on accident for something. And it, like it's, it's done that way for a reason. But I have to wonder, is, like, is 12 actually... A good number here because if you have one or two or three you're going to have this like tight-knit group of people or a single person who will make a clear decision and say this is the plan we're going with it deal so that would be fast and the other alternative is you have a way for everybody who uses kickstarter or many people who use kickstarter even like some kind of uh, program where you like like let 15 20 percent of people get a hold of you. If you did that, you would get an enormous amount of data from people and you could kind of aggregate it and see what kind of changes would be popular. And you could like opinion poll it, but this doesn't really allow for either. And I'm curious to see how it works out. If they have good chemistry, it should be fine. But that's the key question that we won't know until much later. Yeah, I think <clears throat> from looking at this, it looks like um, it wasn't Kickstarter like reaching out to specific people people had to apply to be on this committee. And so I'm assuming since they had to apply, like you literally filled out an application, almost like a job application. You say what you did on Kickstarter. And I, I'm assuming people who, who apply to things have their own agenda. So you're going to have 12 people here with their own agenda. And I have a feeling that uh, I think it's not either not much is going to get accomplished. However, if they do agree on something, then I'm assuming it's a, you know, it's a pretty big thing to agree on. It should be changed. But yeah, I have a feeling it's going to be more of uh, a little bit of uh, not arguing, but uh, a lot of controversial uh, ideas and going back and forth without any any finished thoughts and, and procedures. Yeah, my, my yeah. concern is there was an article that they wrote before they announced the Kickstarter Advisory Council. There was a page about the Advisory Council. I don't know if it came out right afterward or right before mm -hmm. something like that. But in the midst of this article, there is a recommitment or rather a, an affirmation of the former commitment to engage with blockchain technology. And it's, it seems like a small thing, but you know, when Kickstarter announced they were going to work with blockchain, they got a lot of flack because blockchain wasn't something that their user base was asking mm -hmm. for necessarily. And yet that's where the resources were going. And my concern with the advisory council, um, it, this is also 
possible is that that it's really not it doesn't have any teeth let's say the group is very unified and they stick to hey this is what your user base really wants and you know we're committed to doing what's best for creators and backers and they actually suggest a lot of great things then it seems like there are powers that be that exist mm-hmm. within Kickstarter that are actually making the decisions so they're giving the committee room maybe enough rope potentially to hang themselves um with with uh you know as as you mentioned earlier i think uh, a scapegoat right um mm. sean yeah or, yeah and so um i wonder if the suggestions will be prioritized after things like blockchain or if they're actually willing to reprioritize mm-hmm. so it's curious on our previous episode, we talked about obviously competitors to Kickstarter and the the danger of it becoming a bit nebulous, like streaming services at Netflix, where everyone has their own streaming service, everyone has their own crowdfunding platform. But one an interesting project that came up in the news for me this week was by Angel Studios, and Angel Studios is a streaming uh, platform, but they do crowdfunding, mm-hmm. and they've just released a a project which is the Wing Feather Saga season two. And what makes this interesting is that they are actually getting people to express interest in the project. They didn't have $3 million pledged in the sense of people kind of saying, this is how much I'll put behind this, which is an interesting approach where they, they're part of their pre-marketing is they're trying to gauge the, the pledge levels and how much are people willing to throw at this, which is, which is interesting. I think it's an interesting approach. And I wonder if more crowdfunding companies will consider integrating something like this into their platforms. I really like this. I'm looking at the, yeah. the website right now. I'm real impressed because it actually looks like an upscale version of, of Kickstarter. <laughs> um, and it's really well put. It's simple and it's put together well. It looks like Kickstarter, um, but it's not. I think we also talked about, you know, maybe we should create our own platform for our clients uh, that they can put on their own websites. And this is sort of like almost the same thing there. Um, it does look like looks like they require a, a few extra steps. We have to log in and create an account, which, you know, sort of throws me a little off but yeah you're showing it's showing 2.9 million pledged people of 2800 uh people involved they're using my font they're using my <laughs> font that i'm using for deliverance I, I look at this font every day oh man but they say um in in the fine notes it says no money or other considerations being solicited and if set will not be accepted no sales will be made or commitments to purchase accepted until a Form C offering statements filed with Securities Exchange Commission. Blah 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 blah. That's there for scammers. So scammers will say, "Oh, right. by the way, here you can now pledge." <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so they're, they're so they're pretty much they're just saying uh, we just want yeah, like like you said, we just want to know if you're interested. But we're not taking anything right now. We just but they're they're treating it like it looks like a Kickstarter. It's it's probably making the excitement grow as like a Kickstarter as well. Does anyone yeah. have a login to it to see if there's like a chat or you know like a message well, board? I, well, I I submitted it and there's like a questionnaire at the end of you know how did you discover the project you know how, do you want to be contacted or added to the email list so there was a bit of a questionnaire where they got some more details from me a lead so it's a very interesting concept it's definitely one to study and examine we might be able to even incorporate some ideas into our funnel where maybe you have to say, an email do you submit a form that'd be helpful our future, la- our future landing pages might might be like this i, I was like gonna it. say it since the money is not actually changing hands it does function like a really elegant landing page mm-hmm. it gives those it gives you a ton of information there's a ton of calls to action on there and you've got this like group aspect because that number is going to keep going up as people 
pledge more money or express interest to pledge more money. I, I'm curious to see whether or not they have truly generated $2.9 million in real yeah. interest, but I don't know. I mean, even if it's like 10% of that, that's still a substantial milestone to do on a website of your own design. Yeah, you know, um, I'll say I, I have an acquaintance that actually is an investor into um, Angel Studios and they, uh, you know, Angel Studios is the company that is behind the largest crowdfunding project of all time, hmm. which is called The Chosen. It's a, ser- a, t- a TV series, um, or I don't even, wouldn't even call it a TV series, but it's a Web series. crowdfunded series on the, basically the Bible. And they've raised, I don't want to misquote, but I think almost $30 million, dollars. <laughs> over $30 million. Yeah, like they have, they have their own app and everything. They well over any other crowdfunding campaign. Um, I, no, no, no. That, I think that's for one season and they have three seasons. So Brandon Sanderson's epic um, Kickstarter campaign, uh, did, you know, still isn't in the ballpark of uh, where the chosen is at from what I remember. And so anyway, this company, they are really uh, kind of behind media projects, not necessarily games. So wing feather saga is a popular book series that they're turning into an animated series and they've already successfully funded the season one of that animated series. And what we're looking at right now is the season two interest page. And they're really smart. They have, uh, they, they ask people to express interest. They get an email list. It's like the Kickstarter notify me on launch page and they will, they'll actually let you know an offering is on the table. And what they, what they're doing is they're selling equity in not necessarily in the company behind the project, but in the project itself. So if the project makes, let's say a hundred million dollars, the backers of season one or season two or whatever are going to make a percentage of that, you know, a small percentage based on the number of shares that they have. So So, I just signed in. It's interesting because yeah, these numbers are going to be inflated. Like, like Brandon said, because they ask, they ask you, what's the most you'd be interested in investing in? And it starts at $150. Yeah. I put in 30. (laughs) Yeah. And then it goes up to $25,000 and then there's a button for other. So, I mean, people might just click a button just to get through the form. And if, like I said, the defaults to $500, I I would, I don't know how many people would spend $500 on a game unless they're like really, really, really into the game. And then there's an option to make your pledge anonymous. Does it share your name and how much you're pledging, even though you're not pledging? They do a great job at being as social as possible. So one of the nice things that, well, they, that they have going for them is that every project is associated with some sort of intellectual property that gets, or that has a following. And so you're going to, it tends to be very uh, social, these types of projects that they take on. I don't believe that they have, that they're not an open company that you can just go and use their platform to sell whatever you've got. But it's a, um, it is a curious thing. And I think what they're doing is they're kind of going after whales where Kickstarter goes after the everyday person Mm -hmm. and most crowdfunding that we talk about goes after the everyday person. This company goes after those people that have 500 bucks to drop on a show that'll, you know, that'll come out two years from now because, you know, maybe their kid read the book and they like the, you know, well, they have an ax to grind because I think they're sort of targeting a very specific demographic of you know particular content where people really yeah. want that content to exist and it's kind of a way to say yeah mm-hmm. i want this to exist so i think that's well, part of it 
What's yep. really great is all the information they're actually gathering before they even start. So, mm-hmm. for example, the first thing you got to do is if you want to say that you're committed is you got to submit your email address and confirm it. So now they have your confirmed email address. Mm-hmm. Then um, now it does say optional. But of course, if people are interested, they're going to fill this out. They get your phone number. They get your name and they get where you are in the world. They'll ask you your country and your uh, region or state, uh, depending on where you're at in the world. And so they have all that information, so they can say, okay, well, we have this you know percentage of people in the U.S., we have this percentage of people in the U.K. This, you know, so I think the information gathering is really great on their and they part. They could probably use that for mm-hmm. investors, right? So we have so many people who've expressed interest in this region. This is how much they they've expressed interest in submitting. So mm-hmm. are you willing to invest this much money? So I think it's going to give them leverage in the back end to seek investors. Yep. yep. And then once you uh, fill out the form, it says thank you. And on the thank you page, they actually want you to share it on their you know, on Facebook, Twitter, and email. They have it all set up. They also have a button to share their other projects. And then they have a another optional form to ask you how you heard about it. Yeah, they're they're uh, they're getting a lot of data, a lot of data. Yeah. And, um, you know, as an aside, I've totally read this book series. Uh, it was a good book series. Uh, the Wing Feather Saga it was fun. Um, very, very interesting for... Uh, I guess like a young adult series, but um, if you if you scroll down on on this page, you can look at the highest grossing franchises ever, mm-hmm. and you you know you've got Mickey Mouse, Star Wars, Mario, Disney Hello Princess Kitty. collection. Mm-hmm. Hello Kitty dominates everyone. <laughs> Takes over the world. Hello Kitty's raised eighty billion dollars uh, as a single franchise. I suppose it's probably the Asian market Mouse. that it's able to yeah. dig into. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. but that's surprising is Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. So uh, let's get into our topic at hand with Brandon because you and uh, so we are working together on a project that is set to come out maybe like two years from now. Mm-hmm. And it's a really long term project with somebody who's very, very passionate. It's like a tabletop RPG mm-hmm. and a couple of other things called Vrahode. And people are, the people working on it are very passionate about it. And it's a slow burn. It's, I guess, one of the reasons that that we were brought in was because we have experience working with projects like this that take a long time to actually come out. And uh, so, you know, it's just the um, the marketing for a project that's going to hit two years from now is much different than the, than a project that'll that'll hit Kickstarter or whatever six weeks from now. So it's been really awesome and interesting to be able to work with you on this project, Brandon. And you are kind of as, um, you know, we had this initial kickoff meeting together and the way that I likened your role in the project is kind of like the quarterback. You're there to make sure everybody does what they need to do. You're there to make sure that the project's moving on time and really as kind of the connector for all of the various vendors and, you know, people working on the project. And so I'm really excited to kind of dive into this project management and how really others can, you know, that are listening can kind of apply this to their own, their own projects. Well, first, thank you for the kind words. First of all, as, as for project management, I'll tell you this, uh, right. I have never had formal training in it, nor have I had this like explicitly be the primary thing that I do, but it has always been the backdrop of probably the last six or seven years of my career, it has come up time and time again in a bunch of different contexts. Everything from getting my own games out the door and figuring out like, how do you actually develop these? How do you get them, you know, how do you market them and get them seen by enough people, kickstart it, 
you know, manufacture freight, ship it, and send it to people individually. And project management is essentially, to me, the art of taking a defined project, no matter how complicated it is, but something with a start and an end and figuring out what needs to be done and who needs to do it and when. And now usually the creator is their own project manager, right? Mm -hmm. The person making the thing that has the vision for the thing is also the only person that's able to work on the thing because they've got no money, right? Yeah, absolutely. And oh. now when a situation is a little bit different where somebody has a little bit more financial means, or maybe it's not their first project or, you know, I mean, in, in my case, let's say I work in essence, I work a full-time job and I do a thing that I really like on the side, making deliverance, making games and whatnot. Um, I might have a little disposable income to be able to send to various vendors. One of the things I'm personally very interested in is getting somebody to assist with my logistics. I just don't want to trip any wires that would cause significant delays in my project or significant cost increases on the logistics side. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that you kind of work through all of that, but who generally would need a project manager or who would really benefit from somebody doing project management? If you're looking for somebody who will actually act as a dedicated project manager, not even necessarily a full-time employee, but just like somebody who can even give you a few hours a week to keep on top of this stuff. I would say if you're running a business where you can afford two, 300 extra a week in labor hours to outsource this, that would probably be the point where you might want to consider getting a project manager to help you manage this stuff. And what that would actually look like is like they help you get a plan set up and then you just have you know, periodic meetings with individuals in the team and get status updates and get things updated. And in the case of Jeff, actually, since I'm playing project manager role, he'll just email me stuff when it comes up and then I'll just get that updated on our big list. But the, like the first threshold you have to cross is like, make sure you've got the money to actually hire somebody to do it. I would say the second indicator that you need it is if it's, it's somebody to help you out with this is if it's so complicated that you can't actually write out the to-do list like you would need to. And that is, that's a lot more subjective. And that, that, that's going to be based on like how much patience you have and how much knowledge you have. Yes. That's, I think that's a key is the, the knowledge base that you have. I, I, that's actually one of the things that I'm concerned about is and any, I think any shrewd business person is going to say, there are things that I don't know uh, that I don't know. And I need to find somebody that knows the things that I don't know so that I don't step in it or trip mm -hmm. a wire as I analogy that I used earlier. And I guess you're that you, you're that guy for some people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For, for some people, that's what I do. Yeah. It's kind of like most people running a business understand at a certain point you need an accountant. <laughs> so they'll, they'll go get an accountant. Or they won't do law on their own, so they'll hire a paralegal or something. It's kind of like that. It's just like when you don't feel like you can manage the details on your own, that's when you would hire out the help. What I do most of the time is actually marketing consulting, which I've been doing part-time for over three years and full-time for over a year now. But actual project management, it's like I um, kind of touched on earlier a little bit. It's it's something that I've done off and on in bits and pieces for the last six or seven years. Okay. It's a lot easier to find somebody that knows they need marketing 
than somebody that knows they need project management. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways you have to sell yourself to the person that needs it versus somebody in marketing. They're like, I need to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? Oh, actually that, that reminds me of something with project management. It's like, how do you know when you need it? If you've got like a bunch of different people doing something and there's potential for the work to overlap, that's a good sign that project management could come in handy, even if one of those people is also doing other stuff. I'm also, in the case of Rahul, probably going to be doing some social management, like some light day-to-day ads. You guys are going to do the big, heavy funnel lead gen stuff. But I'll be doing your little fives and tens on social boosting. Yeah. Like I do that stuff, but I also play the project manager role as well, because it's like, where does my marketing agency start and where does yours start? Who's doing what? And, yep. and, you know, another member of our team, she knows web design. She doesn't know as much web design as, as me. I don't think, I don't know, actually, I don't know the full depth of her skill yet. The point is I don't have to do everything myself and I shouldn't. Some of that's got to go to her. What goes to her? What goes to me? Mm-hmm. What goes to you? Actually, if I have to tap out and get somebody even better at it, you know, in regard to the specific areas that you're helping with, I know that you divided this whole Varahud project into a number of different segments. And I'd love it if you would um, talk about kind of the, the main chunks of those, how you divided those things. Here's the method I use to break down the Vrahod project. And I'm going to say this in generalities so that I don't like accidentally scoop a lot of the cool stuff that's going to happen over the next couple of years. But like what I wanted to do was get a really big list of things that need to be done and get them in roughly the order that they need to be done. And one way I did that was I divided the work up into phases, like certain phases could happen sometimes concurrently or simultaneously, but they both had like all of them had to be completed before you move on. Like if you want to go real formal, like MBA stuff, that's called a dependency. I don't really know that that's the most natural word for people to use if they haven't been exposed to that kind of stuff. But that's like, that's what it's called. Basically, you want to root out dependencies because that's what's going to hold up a project. So in in Jeff's case, in Drahod's case, I know that sometime in the next couple of weeks, we need all his social set up. We need all the ad managers set up. And I, I actually need to grant you access today or tomorrow or something. We, we need to get that out. We need to have a system where he can tell me what his art means and I can get that scheduled and he can send me pictures of notes and stuff and I can make TikToks or whatever that I need to from it. Like we got to have all that up. Our basic processes are understanding. And at the same time, Jeff and, and his team and all and his army of subcontractors is working on all the different art. And because it's such an art-driven game, I've broken it down into like 20, 25 different tasks just so we can track different kinds of art. Because I know different kinds of art are actually going ultimately to different people. So like we've got that going on. Basic marketing infrastructure needs to be built and basic processes need to be set up. And at the same time, that art's got to happen. That art's got to be made. So we're talking critical path here. Absolutely. Yeah. We know that both of these have to happen in order to proceed down that critical path. One thing I'll say is when you shared this with us on our call, I was was super impressed at how detailed it was and just how organized you were. And I think it's going to be very, (laughs) very helpful. And I actually think it's something that you could possibly either either sell to other 
content creators or people trying to get into the space or give away as like a part of people signing up to an email list. I think that would be very helpful for people because it's super helpful just because it's a lot of the stuff we would know in our heads, but when you actually see it all on paper, like on a spreadsheet as you have, uh, as you have put forward, I think it'd be very helpful for people. And I think it's something that you could definitely leverage in with your marketing business. And I think it'd be very helpful even to our listeners. So if you, if you do do that at some stage, let us know. We can include it in the show notes of this uh, podcast. I have a boilerplate somewhere on the blog. It's somewhere in the like 250 posts I've made over the couple of, over the last few years. But I like that as an opt-in incentive because that's a good reason to get somebody to give you their email is say, I will give you a list of a hundred things you need to do. Absolutely. In the order of priority, right? Yeah. And with the, with the level of detail here, for this, I knew I couldn't even use my templates, really. It's just way too big. I use them as a rough guideline. So actually, I was away on holiday. I was in a cabin in like nowhere, Tennessee, basically. And all we had there was a dial, not a dial-up line, but the next step up, which is DSL, which means no real distractions. I could get to my email, but I couldn't get to anything that like would actually distract me meaningfully like YouTube or even social media. So I just went there and I wrote this stuff down at first on paper and then into a Google sheet when I figured out I could get that to work. And I just like, I just sat there and thought about it for as long as I needed to in order to actually get that list. Because I was like, if I get all the details out right now, it's going to pay off dividends in the future. Mm -hmm. And so that was my logic. And I think a lot of people would be well served by thinking about their project in that way. Like take an entire afternoon and just, if you can, and close yourself off and think about this. Not always possible with, you know, jobs and childcare obligations and that sort of thing, but take as much time as you need to, to get this stuff right. Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about your design background and how you got into game development and <laughs> some of your titles. Yeah, I, I want to hear about Brandon, the game dev. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> gosh, my, my story is a, a mess. I'll tell you that outright. I just, I, I made a card game a long time ago when I was a kid. It was like a ripoff of the Yu-Gi-Oh! TV show. I can't make this stuff up. And I distributed this around to uh, like kids in the neighborhood and stuff. And it became a minor thing in the tiny little social community of my neighborhood in Smyrna, Tennessee. Like it became a thing. And I forgot about it for many years. And I decided when I was 22, 23 that I needed to start a business somehow. That was my logic. <laughs> and I thought, I'll just use this childhood card game. I ended up retooling it entirely, retheming it, barely using any of the original stuff at all. And I thought, all right, I'm just going to go on Kickstarter and see what happens. And I failed, of course, because I didn't know what I was doing. I went up and basically asked people for money. I didn't have marketing experience. I had a business degree, but that doesn't actually tell you how to practically apply your knowledge no contacts in the board game community not a real background in that kind of thing and then i fell down the rabbit hole of board games because i went to kickstarter first and then through that i started playing other stuff talking to people learning about game design i applied that to my game warco which is what it eventually became called warco the expandable card game and tried to get on Kickstarter and like squeaked over the goal barely with like 12.5 on a 10K goal. And that's, that's how that went. And, and I fulfilled that and, and that ended up going pretty well. 
But of course, it's not like a popular game. You're not going to find it in your local gaming store. Like, it's not much of a thing. What is really interesting is that after that, I started blogging about all the things I wish I knew. And that actually blew up way, 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 way more than anything I ever designed. Like, the, the, the blog gets a lot more readership because I felt isolated. I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. And turns out a lot of people felt that way. And because I was writing for, for my series start to finish, I made a big list of the things I wish I knew. It was like a hundred articles long. And I like, I created the headlines I wish I could find. And then I wrote the articles around them. And then turns out that actually ranked pretty well in long tail keywords on Google. And that ended up getting a lot of traffic. I did a second game. It didn't work out. It was called highways and byways. It was about road trips across the States. Um, honestly, I, I still feel pretty good about many of the game design choices, but the price was wrong and I didn't find the right um, audience for it because there wasn't really like an audience for that kind of thing in particular. And I went design first instead of market first on this. And I wrote a piece on why it failed. And then that piece got more popular than the Kickstarter about why it failed, right? And so I... I kind of failed up in that sense. I started messaging a bunch of people on Twitter and whatnot and inviting them to a Discord. That ended up getting really big. And a lot of people just started bouncing ideas off each other in chat. That turned into a minor community, which turned into a game design contest, which I held at one point. One guy won that, sent us in a wonderful design. We turned that into the next game, Tasty Humans. Modest success, 20 some thousand dollars. Projects were always shoestring budget. I'm talking like I had 2,500 bucks to get these things made, like the pre-marketing and everything. So we ended up doing okay based on that and based on the design. Around the time that launched, the blog, which had blown up far more than anything I had ever done in the actual physical board game space, got seen by the guy who runs Fulforite, which is a shipping company up in New Jersey, doing pretty well. They've been around since 2010 hired me for some marketing consulting. And then that continued to grow and grow and grow from there. And that turned into like, I hold director of marketing title there too. I do most of their marketing responsibilities. That's how, that's how my board game journey went. It's like I said, it's chaos. <laughs> cool. It's you failed, you failed to success. Day. I did. Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I just tried stuff and it didn't work. And like, I got real, I got real hurt over it. I felt bad about it, but I was like, okay, I got to try again. And I just got to try again smarter. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's how I did. I just like tried a bunch of stuff. Most of it didn't work and figured out what did in the process and just wrote it all down. That's a really great tale. It's going to encourage a lot of people here in the design <laughs> space. And it's very similar to, I suppose, Andrew, where developing <clears throat> deliverance and tracking that entire, this is what this whole podcast really started off as, is really tracking Andrew's journey from getting this game out and following that entire journey. So we can relate to your struggles and uh, <laughs> like, yeah, my, I would love to tell you that I'm one of those guys who has played 500 board games and eventually asked, like paid attention to the trends and then developed something that was the perfect mix of my intuition and what people were interested in and was like culturally a great fit. And then in that process, made that evergreen game that went to Kickstarter. I didn't market it that much, but, you know, it just really had great fit. I'd love to tell you that 
love to tell you I went to the Gen Con to Gen Con and UKGE and all that stuff. Origins got best in show. Everybody, yeah, yeah. I'd love to tell you that, but that's just not the story. Mine was like this weird winding path. <laughs> I think that's where everybody comes from, you know. Everybody is finds out that they're, you know, uh, really, really good at something when they find out that they're kind of mediocre at something else, or maybe even, you know, that out of necessity mm -hmm. is born a um a passion for for something it's like hey i need to make money and this is a skill set that i have i'm going to take this job on and then before you know it you're you know that's that's yeah. kind of kind of what i did i actually i started out i was working in a hospital in uh, as an emt and in an emergency room and i started a business part-time on the side just to make a little bit of money here and there and I was selling vitamins. And I'm like, you know, these are good vitamins, but I need money. So I looked at web design and was like, well, mm -hmm. I can make a thousand bucks from selling a website and I make yeah. whatever, $15 from selling a bottle of vitamins. I'd rather, I'd rather sell a website, you know, a month. And that's really the foundation of yeah. where I, where I came from. When, um, when do you start with the websites? I'm curious. Oh, when, uh, this was back in 2009 or 2010, I kind of switched um, over to yeah. web design. So that's that's the time where you were still, I think, for the most part, people it's still writing the actual HTML code. Yeah, so WordPress. I had none of that experience. All I had was, you know, a desire to make money because I really needed it a lot. <laughs> and I you know, you on that. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I, you know, and that's it's funny because I really had no skill set at all in relation to marketing. I was really good at video games. So I kind of understood. You how to like a video game. Yeah, yep. I just graduated college, so I knew how to think. Uh, I don't know if that Level is up. a qualifier or not, but mm -hmm. it's. I had more time critical thinking, I guess, than if I just graduated high school. But yeah, it was very much flying by the seat of my pants, and figured out I'm pretty mediocre at at like web design. I don't want to be a developer like of HTML, CSS, mm -hmm. PHP, and so on. I'm actually not that good at it. <laughs> but it gave you a start and it gave you a fundamental way to understand how like that that stuff was put sure together. Did. it kept me from going homeless yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been playing around for with web design for a long time I, I actually started in 07 as like a tiny like kind of kids hobby for me it's what it was I was a nerdy teenager but like I I, I actually have nostalgia for that particular era of web design and what in, was involved in creating websites at that time yeah, like text editors and you you had more creative bandwidth over the design because like the digital marketers had not come into it and told everybody that you have to have big image button in middle cta subline you know yeah. what i'm saying like it didn't you didn't have that yet you were like let me that's because people couldn't download that fast <laughs> that's <laughs> true also i forget blind, about that blind designers touching a digital elephant yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here on my, you know, my fiber line. I, I'm sitting here on my fiber line. And I'm like, wait a minute. When I was an adult in college, not terribly long ago, we were still struggling to download music quickly and streaming was touch and go. Yeah. And Spotify, came didn't, from. Spotify and also only illegal. existed at the end. <laughs> uh, That's where MP3s came from. Compressed uh, MP3s are compressed sound. Yeah. As opposed to the full quality. Yeah. Like but um, yeah, tw if you asked me 20 years ago what my favorite uh, 
web editing tool was, I'd be like Notepad. Yeah, you know? Notepad plus plus. Or if you were rich and and you were hoity toity, you would have Dream Dreamweaver. <laughs> That's amazing. I did a, like a pinky out gesture for. And then I went to Coffee Cup, yeah. and then uh, a couple other things. And <laughs> now I'm on I'm on the uh, the Microsoft boat as everyone else is with. Uh, yep. And now it's like designing a text-based uh, RPG using the Unreal Engine. Mm-hmm. No, I'm using Microsoft Studio Code. <laughs> but uh, that was a joke for all you non-nerds. There, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, game game creation when I was a child. All right, I just have to write Roller Coaster Tycoon and x86 assembly, and that's that. Easy. Now it's like Unity Engine, which is fine, by the way. I mean, they make drag and drop games that way. Yeah, but. Like use the tools you have available, but I am a little nostalgic for having to figure out stuff the hard way. And even websites like Apple and Amazon kind of looking bad. I'm a little yep. nostalgic for that. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, Kickstarter is a great website that looks bad, but still, <laughs> you know, people use it. Um, you know. Not for long, though. Maybe by the time you listen to this, we'll have our new. Almost version. did an actual spit take at that. <laughs> There's actually so, a website I can't remember off the top of my head, but you you go to it and it shows you like the old websites from back in the day, like the old uh, Netscape yeah. Navigator page and you know. Which is Space and, Jam? Space Jam hasn't updated their website. Yeah, since I them from the nineties. It was all about Homestar Runner. Oh yes, Homestar Runner was that was a thing for a while, and Strong like they bad. moved their yeah. <laughs> home. I'm Homestar Runner. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So <laughs> how does he type with boxing gloves on? We've never established this. It's magic. He gets angry every time you ask him. Yep. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.